0: Now, if you study the the animal world, let's say for a moment you're studying wolves. You'll notice that in wolf packs, there's an alpha male or an alpha female or an alpha male and alpha female leading the pack. If you watch cattle herds, they bump each other around, they jockey for position, and eventually one dominant cow will typically lead the herd. Even among chickens, There's usually one dominant hen or rooster that sort of leads the flock. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a position of authority, but I suspect that almost all of you probably have at some point or another. You were babysitting someone. You were maybe an older sibling. You are a supervisor or boss at work. You're a husband. You're a parent. Have you ever thought about the basis of authority. Have you ever thought about the question, like, where where does authority come from? In a wolf pack, it's obvious. The wolf with the biggest muscles and the biggest teeth wins. In a cattle herd, it's obvious. The beef with the most beef wins. But where does authority come from in human relationships? Well, this is one of the questions that we've been discussing along with what the limits of authority is in human relationships. And in theological terms, we call this discussion sphere sovereignty, or you could call it sphere authority. So I have been working on a series of messages. Last week was message number one. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to that message this week because it'll help you to understand even more clearly what we're talking about today, next week, and the following week. But this whole discussion of sphere sovereignty or sphere authority is seeking to answer the question, where does authority come from and what are the limits of authority, especially when it comes to authority within the family, authority within the church, and authority within the state. And then the secondary question to that is, what's the, what's the connection between the authority authority? of the family, the authority of the church, and the authority of the state? What's the overlap? Or what are the distinctives? Now, the reason why this discussion is super important is because Canadian culture is getting it wrong almost in every decision they make. So perhaps you saw several months ago out in the province of New Brunswick, there was a bit of a a, a political discussion. I think Maxime Bernier was there and several citizens and in the course of this conversation, the New Brunswick Minister of Education was, was having a discussion with some people, and one of the ladies, one of the parents in the crowd said about children, and she was seeking to, uh, to address the fact that she felt that the Minister of Education was wielding too much authority over her children. She said, they are our children. This is what the parent said to the New Brunswick Minister of Education. Did you see this clip? The Minister of Education responded, no, they are the provinces. Now you think about that. This is really an unprecedented notion in human history that your children belong to the state. And it's increasingly becoming commonplace. Now we could rewind the clock, rewind the calendar, if you will, back almost 100 years. Different set of circumstances, but many of you know about the residential school program in our country. Same problem. Some parents, as best as I understand it, volunteered to send their children to residential schools. But many of the children were forcibly taken by police officers, clergymen, various government officials, forcibly taken off reserves, out of their homes, and sent to government schools and educated. And many of you know that there was a lot of catastrophe and abuse and whatnot associated with that. In recent days, we've heard a lot of discussions about vaccinations. And we've said in our church, we're we're not going to divide our church over matters of vaccination. But one thing that should concern all of us is this this idea that a small child can choose to be vaccinated without parental consent. So these are illustrations that point to the fact we need to have this conversation. What are the limits of authority that God has given to the state, the church, and the family? Well, today we're going to start off, last week was an overview, today we're going to start off with a discussion about exploring sovereignty within the the family, sovereignty within marriages, sovereignty within the home. In particular, we want to discuss what is the role of God in your family? And we're going to follow that up with a conversation about the role of husbands and the role of parents in the family. What authority do you have if you're a husband, given to you by God? What authority do you have as a parent? And how does that relate to these other spheres? So foundationally, we're going to go back to this critical passage, which I presented to you last week in Colossians chapter 1. And we want to remind ourselves that foundationally, foundationally the ultimate authority over every human family is God doesn't matter whether you're an Islamic family, a Hindu family, a Christian family, or claim to be a secular family. According to the word of God, the ultimate authority over every family is God. Family's not the church. The church isn't the state. Just because you're a godly man and you're leading your family well, you're not the pastor of your family. Your family isn't a church. The church is distinct from the family. The family is distinct from the church. The family is distinct from the state. The state's distinct from the family. We work together in a properly functioning society. But whether you're in a family, a church, or functioning as an agent of the state, the Bible is crystal clear on this. And it's amazing to me that so many Christians don't understand this. God has authority over all authorities. God has authority over all authorities. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 is unambiguous in this regard, where it says, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, plural. How many authorities? Just, just clergymen? Just churches? No. All things were created through him, and for him. Now, unfortunately, we have this dualism in the mindset of many Christians where it says, no, this, this earth isn't our home. We're just passing through. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're just focusing on heaven. I mean, didn't Jesus say, after all, this world is not, you know, this, 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 the kingdom of this world is not my kingdom? I mean, isn't there, isn't there like the, the kingdom, isn't there two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the future? No, Jesus was saying, the systems, the structures, the principles, the way people operate without God, that's not my kingdom. But Jesus wasn't saying, Well, I'm not, I'm not the Lord of creation. I'm not the Lord of the Here and Now. I'm just the Lord of heaven. No, no, no. All authorities, whether they are visible, you can see them in the here and now, or invisible in the spirit realm, are under the authority of God. In this respect, there's one kingdom. God is in charge of absolutely Everything. Whether you admit it or not is another point. But God, biblically speaking, is in charge and has authority over everything. So this means that if you are in a position of authority, you are actually under authority. Understand that? If you're in a position of authority, you're under authority. That is the authority of Christ. So moms, you have authority over your children, but you're actually under the authority of Christ. Dads, you have authority over your children, but you're still under the authority of Christ. Husbands, you have authority over your wife, but you're still under the authority of Christ. All human authority is delegated authority. Remember this. No human authority is absolute, and no human authority is independent. All human authority is under the authority of Christ. If that's not true, you're God. You're the ultimate determinant of right and wrong, truth and error. And of course, we would call that idolatry. So perhaps you've heard it said this way, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Simple as that. So the Christian family, the kind that actually acts Christianly, I mean, because I believe there's a lot of Christian Christian families that don't act Christianly. But the Christian family that acts Christianly is at a distinct advantage because they are under the authority of Christ. And when you are led by Christ, you'll never be led into error. So anytime anyone in any position of leadership leads those under them into error, They're not following Christ because Christ will never lead us into sin. Christ will never lead us into error. One of the choice passages in scripture to understand family dynamics, spheres of authority is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 speaks to husbands, speaks to wives, speaks to children, and speaks to parents. Those are the four participants in any family. There's no fifth participant in the human world. There's God, of course, but in the human world, those are your four participants. You got a husband, a wife, parents, and children. And Ephesians 5, and just kind of sneaking into chapter 6 as well, speaks to all of those relationships. Now, this passage is predicated upon this statement in chapter 5, verse 21. So before we talk about what's the role of a wife, what's the role of a husband, a parent, a child, this overarching statement is given to us in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a little reminder there, before wives think about what's my relationship with my man, Before dads think about what's my relationship with my children, we're reminded that we're all submitting out of reverence to Christ. Sort of a little reminder of what we've already been taught in Colossians chapter 1 included here. So in other words, every human authority is submissive to Christ. So if that's true, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, then three things must be considered. Number one, submission to properly assigned authority is an act of reverence, meaning worship. So when you submit to whatever authority God has placed over you, and at different points in life, we all, without exception, will be under authority, that's an act of worship. So if you're a child living in your parents' home, and you're submitting to your parents, that's your act of worship. If you're a husband, you're trying to lead your family, but you're humble and you're submitting to God, that's an act of worship. If you're a wife, and you're submitting to your husband's loving leadership, that's an act of worship. It says there, out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, failing to submit to authority dishonors Christ. Can we agree to that? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, if we don't do that, we dishonor Christ. And that creates a state marked by anarchy or a family marked by anarchy. You ever witnessed a family where things are just always like everyone's uptight, they're always fighting, they're always at each other's throats? It's often a generational problem. There's just never peace in the home, there's always tension. We call that anarchy. And the fundamental problem with a family that is functioning that way is that they have failed to honor Christ in their marriage and in their parenting. Very simple. Sometimes it's hard to fix, but it's simple to to diagnose. Third, submitting, therefore, to an authority that is not delegated by Christ dishonors Christ. So if a person tries to exercise authority that has not been granted to them by Christ... That doesn't honor Christ. What you do is you're contributing to someone who's trying to usurp authority. An example of this would be if the state health minister says, no, your children are my children. You're like, well, I got to submit to authority. He's in a position of authority, so okay. No, no. You've just contributed to a usurper mindset. So we must understand what the spheres of authority are. What are the boundaries and spheres of authority within the family? Let's begin by talking about the authority that God delegates to husbands. Now, if you're new to church, this might surprise you because you're not going to hear this on CBC, CNN, or in your local public high school class on family dynamics. But this is the word of God and we never apologize for what God has said. In fact, we consider everything God says to be beautiful and productive and healthy. So we embrace it. Here's what the Bible says. Wives, any wives in the room today? Speaks to you first. Submit. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Submit to your own husbands, not someone else's husband, to your husband, as to the Lord, as to. Just create a little equal sign in your mind there. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So does in everything mean comprehensively? If he tells me I can't go to church, do I need to say, well, I got to submit to my husband? If he tells me I can't be a Christian, do I need to say, well, no. In everything is boundaried by in everything that he has been delegated authority over. So if he's asking you to do something that's contrary to Scripture, you're like, yeah, I'm not listening to you. But if your husband asks you to do something that is in keeping with Scripture, you must submit to him in the same way that the church submits to Christ. So that's the clear-cut instruction to wives. And then we have some instruction to men. Now, many of you who've been to some of the weddings I've done will know that I always preach this text at weddings because I think it's pretty important. And I often make the joke that the guys get like two or three times more verses than the women because we're a little more dense. So men, buckle up. There's a lot here for you. Husbands, love your wives... And then we have this equal sign, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how how you're supposed to love your wife, sacrificially. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, meaning he wants to see her become more like Jesus, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Do you understand the gospel? If you understand the gospel, you'll understand marital dynamics. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then, what the writer does, as Paul, Paul and other New Testament writers often do, is they go back and they grab something out of more ancient scripture. So, Paul goes right back, grabs something out of the early chapters of Genesis to kind of lay the foundation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, which means every new family is distinct. So, if you're one of those helicopter parents, you're like, Well, you know, I'm 25, 30 years older than my son. I know he's 30, but I'm still going to try to control his life. You're sinning. You have no authority over your adult children once they've left and cleft, if that's even a word. It sounded good. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He shall guard and protect his distinct new household, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in this very gospel-centered passage, the male and female marry and they reflect the full gospel of Jesus Christ as one role plays the church and one role plays Christ. So if you think of it this way, it's very clear. The primary instruction given to the husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. And the primary instruction given to the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And and those two actions are built on the basis of the husband's authority and the wife's submission. So there's love and respect. He loves, she respects. And that's because he has authority granted him by God. And she submits to his spiritual leadership. And when that happens, it becomes a beautiful portrayal of the gospel. Whereby the wife respects his spiritual authority and the husband pours out selfless love. The two are united as one. And all of this is overlaid with this statement. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I think it's true that in the Christian life, the more you submit to Christ and experience his love, the easier it is to put all this into practice in marriage as well. This is why it's important for people to be equally yoked. One of the stupidest decisions you can ever make Christian is to date and marry an unbeliever because then the whole system falls apart. You have one that loves Christ and one that doesn't love love Christ trying to figure out how to be married. And so the rules of marriage, the boundaries of marriage, are just kind of whatever you're feeling on a given day. But a Christian marriage is centered on the gospel. Now when you think about this, now you know why the devil wants to destroy all the creational elements of marriage all the creational elements of marriage. There is a devilish conspiracy going on in our culture today. Think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some words that capture key elements within the gospel. Doesn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, our saving relationship with Christ, involve submission? Aren't we supposed to repent and acknowledge that he's our Lord? I think that's in there. How about headship? Isn't Christ our spiritual head or are we in charge? Who's in charge in your relationship with Christ? Is it Christ in the top or you on the top? Christ, right? He's your spiritual head. That's basic stuff. How about love? For God so loved the world? I think that's in the Bible someplace. Purification, sanctification. God is washing us. He's, He's challenging us. He's confronting us so that we might become more and more like Jesus. How about separation from the past? The more we pursue Christ, the further we move from our old ways of thinking, our old sinful actions. That's that's part of the gospel, our sanctification. How about unity with Christ? Union with Christ is one of the key elements of salvation. We're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we are relationally united with Christ in the eternal kingdom of God. Well, all of these elements are present in Christian marriage. Submission, headship, love, purification, separation from the past, unity with Christ. When you, when you get married, first of all, let me just say this when you're born into a country, let's say Canada, you may get involved in political structures, medical institutions, educational institutions, and you know, microscopically change the direction of your nation during your short time here on earth. But unless you're a radical revolutionary, chances are you're not going to be able to completely alter your nation in one short lifetime. We understand that? But in marriage, you hit the reset button completely if you came from a crummy home where your parents didn't get this, maybe they were atheists, maybe they were dysfunctional Christians, maybe they were abusive, maybe they divorced, maybe they kept divorcing and remarrying, divorcing and remarrying, maybe they abused you, you don't have to say, well, I guess I'm going to have a crummy marriage too. Because you hit the reset button. You leave and you cleave to your husband or your wife. That's a new marriage. Just as a person coming out of a sinful lifestyle, can get saved and be radically altered forevermore. Happens in marriage too. Marriage is such a beautiful reflection of the gospel. What the devil does is he attacks marriage. And he even convinces some Christians, listen to this, who feel comfortable submitting to Christ that submission in marriage is a dirty word. who feel comfortable with the headship of Christ, making headship in marriage a confusing word, who feel comfortable with the loving, self-sacrificing nature of Christ in the gospel, something they could never attain in marriage. Love must be, human love must be corrupt. And so many people, even Conceive or perceive of love as a self-centered concept. The word for that is lust. Others, while they're comfortable with the idea of the sanctifying nature, the discipling nature of the gospel, they don't think of their marriage as a discipling relationship. I do. I'm discipling my wife all the time. And she's discipling me all the time. When she confronts, Asks questions, holds me accountable, and I do the same for her. I'm her spiritual head, but she's also my sister in Christ. And the greatest discipling relationship that I've ever experienced is within my Christian marriage. Is that your mindset? Or is it just some sort of an agreement to have children together and to live together and to purchase property together? Do we understand the distinct nature of each household? where two households, one comes out of one household, one comes out of another household, and they form a new household that is distinct unto itself. In other words, again, as as I said earlier, they hit the reset button. Not the great reset, but they hit the reset button. (laughs) Just as in the gospel, you can come out of a life of sin into salvation. So in marriage, you can come out of dysfunction into function. Out of evil and wickedness into joy and grace. Others would enter into marriage always suspicious, not believing that they could actually enjoy radical unity within their marital relationship. They enter into their relationship suspicious, selfish, always trying to one-up the other person. One of the things I share with the young men that I disciple every year in the church, because young men are generally looking for a wife, okay? Generally. All the time, actually. <laughs> and I say to them, guys, don't even bother pursuing a girl until you're already acting like a marriable man. I said this to my kids, too. Dad, what, what age are we allowed to marry when you start acting like a marriable person? Not when you're 12 still acting like a child. I just want a girlfriend. No. When you start acting like a self sacrificing, honorable, loving person, et cetera. You're moving toward marriage. but What the devil wants us to do is he wants to make all this stuff dirty. And unfortunately, like a, like a row of dominoes, churches across our country have fallen to this lie. How many churches in our country would preach Ephesians chapter five straight up? How many of them would say wives, you must submit to your husbands. I oh, can't say that. We're egalitarians. Everybody's the same. Men are like women, and women are like men. There's no differences. Well, it's interesting they have a problem with submission. Jesus has no problem submitting to the Father, the church has no problem submitting to Christ, but we don't want to talk about that in marriage. The Bible says it, it's transcultural and we must obey it. The devil knows that when he destroys these things, he destroys, listen to this, society's greatest tangible display of the gospel. And that's why the devil is so hot to trot when it comes to destroying gender categories, marital categories, promoting all sorts of abusive images of manhood and womanhood. Family and the sovereignty that husbands have over their wives and children. So, if you're a husband, let me just be super clear your job is to lead your wife toward Jesus as a display of the gospel, not to keep her under your thumb to just get her to do what you want to make your life easier, but to lead her toward Christ. No apologies, no excuses. If you don't like it, stay single. Wives, it should be your joy to submit to a man who loves you more than himself and would literally die for you as Christ died for the church. Encourage him to do well. He might not be as smart as you. He's certainly not as good looking as you. Doesn't matter. If you don't like the structure, remain single. Save everyone else the heartache of marriages imploding. I want to be very specific. I want to share three things that men need to do because oftentimes when we preach this stuff, guys are like, yeah, I want to do this, but tell me how, like, what does this look like in space and time? Well, three things, broadly speaking. Number one, a godly husband initiates. He initiates prayer. He initiates spiritual discussion. He establishes the spiritual tone of the relationship. Hey, if you haven't been doing this up till now, okay, just repent and start. I don't wallow in your guilt and shame. Start initiating, having conversations about what you're learning in scripture, praying with and for your wife, disciplining your children in a way that is godly and honorable. Secondly, a husband protects his family. He protects his family. He protects his family against heretical teaching, against falsehood, against statist intrusion, He'll even protect his family if his pastor tries to intrude in his marriage. I'm not the husband of every woman in this church. I'm the husband of one wife. Your family is a distinct sphere from the church. I'm not responsible to make your marriage work. (laughs) That's your job. If your marriage falls apart, you don't say, well, it's because I went to harvest. Aaron didn't do his job properly. No, it's your job to lead and guide your family. And third, he decides direction. He prayerfully discerns a course of action, especially when him and his wife disagree. So most of the time, when you're making decisions as a husband and wife, there's a lot of mutuality. You're discussing it, you're having conversations about it, and you come to an agreement, but every once in a while you disagree. I can think of an example many years ago where Susie and I disagreed. It related to the discipline of one of our children. I don't remember the circumstances, but there was some differences of opinion on how we should discipline this child in this particular circumstance. And we we discussed it, and we just, just couldn't come to an agreement. So I said, okay, I'm the spiritual leader. I'm going to stand before God and give an account for this, not you. So I go off, I pray about it, I think about it, I come back and I say, honey, this is what we're going to do. And here's the words she wanted to hear, and I'll take full responsibility for the outcomes. Problem solved. And you move on to the next issue. So, it's not the church's job to disciple your children. We have a youth group and children's ministries to help. But don't drop your kids off here thinking we're going to do your job for you. It's your job to discipline your child, to lead your wife, and to manage your own money. If the church takes the role of the husband, there's a problem. If the state takes the role of the husband... There's a problem. Husbands, don't pass this responsibility on to your dad, to your oldest son, to your pastor, to a local therapist or counselor. This is your job. Stay humble and you'll do quite well at it because God's word provides us with the boundaries. Finally, we need to talk about the authority that God delegates to parents. And in this passage... This is chapter 6 now, verses 1 to 3. There's instruction for children, and it's very short and brief. And there's instruction for fathers. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So in the Lord means, again, if your dad says, no, you're not going to be a Christian. You're like, yeah, I'm going to be anyway. But in the Lord, within the boundaries of that, honor your father and mother. He, He hearkens back to the first commandment with a promise in the Ten Commandments, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And then to dads, and I find this sociologically fascinating, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Sometimes dads are a little too heavy-handed. Can we agree to that? Sometimes we're a little too heavy-handed. Now, there's some... Moms, it can be heavy handed too, but you're probably going to find you know, 10 fathers for every one mom. That's just a little too authoritarian, a little too overbearing, a little too controlling. Thus, all the mother-in-law jokes. And I have one of mine right now, I'll share it with you after. But I won't share it in public. But it is a good one. So why are there so many mother-in-law jokes in culture? This, this societal notion of Parents controlling their children's behavior, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a breach of authority, but here the focus is on dads. Do not provoke your children to anger. You know, when you meet a, a young men and you often discuss with them the relationship of the, what they have between their mom and their dad, most young men, it's like, I love my mom. My mom's great. Don't mess with my mom. If you mess with my mom, I'll beat you up, right? They're very protective of their mom. With dads, it's sort of hit and miss. My dad was an ogre. My dad was a workaholic. My dad was never around. And then you have, thankfully, a lot of guys like, my dad was awesome. He was a great example. He loved the Lord. He's not perfect, but I love my dad. But this is all because a lot of fathers provoke their children to anger. They're just a little too heavy-handed. So we have this instruction given to us here, to children. Your basic, most fundamental job is to obey and honor your mother and your father. If they tell you it's time for bed, you never say no. You don't say no. You can ask my five children how many times they've ever said straight-up no to me. I can think of once, and it didn't go well. Because <laughs> right? we've said, you know, you get the attitude, you get the forgetfulness, the kids aren't, weren't perfect by any stretch. You're not saying no to me. I'm your dad. But in a lot of homes, I hear this even in the hallways of the church. It's time to go. No. What do I do? You're the parent. You're in charge. Intimidate them. Have a conversation behind the scenes. You're not their older brother. You're not their buddy. You're not their peer. You're their parent. If you don't like this, don't have kids. Do the next generation a favor. (laughs) Parents are called to lead their children, and children are called to lead their children towards Christ. And children must obey their parents. Again, not obey them when they're asked to do wicked things. So, my dad, who's still living, told me that my grandpa Rock used to say, Hey, son, let's go out stealing. And they'd go out stealing park benches or something and bring them back home, and put them in the yard. Well, it wasn't a Christian home. But if my dad had said, I don't feel comfortable with that, but, you know, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. I guess I got to obey dad. No, you don't do what your parent tells you to do if they're asking you to break the law or sin. But in matters pertaining to raising you, you must obey your parents. And I remember hearing this as a child, and it is so true, right? Every parent uses this. They're like, well, one day you're going to be a parent and you're going to understand. And it's true. If. The better child you are, the better parent you're going to be. You're going to understand how it all works. But if you're a rebellious little punk, and it comes to your opportunity to raise children, it's going to be like, I don't even know what this looks like. And then we honor our parents. We speak respectfully of them. We acknowledge their work. We esteem their role. And dads make it easier for their children to obey by not antagonizing them. I want to take you to to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because there we have this, this ancient focus on parental authority applied to one of the most critical elements of parenting, and that is education. We're all educating our children, our children are all being educated, and the task, the primary responsibility for education actually, contrary to modern culture, is on the parent. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verses seven to nine, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So here we have this notion of delegated authority. God has delegated authority to parents to educate their children in the word of the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with someone who's been delegated authority delegating authority. But when you delegate authority, what you need to understand is you're still responsible for all the outcomes. So this, this might be a little too precise, but I like to think about precise things. So we often have this notion, do I send my kid to a public school or do I homeschool? Well, homeschooling is not the greatest language because it, it emphasizes the location. doesn't emphasize the authority enough, in my opinion. I think we should get rid of the term homeschooling and replace it with parental schooling. Because what that emphasizes is who has the authority to educate your children. So you can... If you understand this, if you understand that as a parent, you are a parental educator, then you're not just going to be educating your children in the home. You're going to be educating your children in the home when you walk by the way, meaning when you're out in the public realm, when you lie down, when you rise, meaning throughout the entire day, you will be educating your children. You will be taking responsibility for that. Now, if you say, okay, well, I'm going to drop my kid off at a Christian school to be educated. There's nothing wrong with that. But you need to understand that every word, every lesson that your child is exposed to is that you are responsible for that because you've delegated authority to that school. Likewise, if you drop your kids off at a public school, you're responsible for every ideology that they're presented with. Now, my advice to you is don't send your kids to public schools. I wouldn't have said that 15 years ago, but because there's been a radical shift, and frankly, you don't have enough time in your day to deprogram young children from all the garbage and false ideologies that are being taught in the public school system. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to help you to be wise. Like, if I send my kids to a public school, I don't have the time in my day to go through all the lesson plans and to deprogram my children. I'm not... Speaking ill of those of you that are public school teachers. I want you in the educational system for as long as you can stand it. But you need to understand you're a missionary there. And you can't bow and buckle to the garbage that you're being required to teach. You need to teach the truth, not teach lies, because you're responsible for what comes out of your mouth too. But the overarching idea here is that we as parents are primarily responsible to educate our children. It's not so much about the location, but it is about the authority. We also need to understand this. Every child is being educated by someone or something. Can't avoid it. They're being educated by the television shows you allow them to watch. They're being educated by the video games you allow them to watch. They're being educated by the church that you attend. They're being educated by the smartphone that they're spending 25 hours a week on. Someone's educating your children. And the problem with the church, I would say, in the last 50 some odd years or so, the reason why so many churches are abject failures is because we have all kinds of people in our churches that have actually surrendered themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and they're born again, but they don't actually think like Christians. Because their educational processes and systems have been secularized, a little bit of atheism, a little bit of Darwinian evolution, a little bit of scientism, whatever it might be, all the isms and ideologies of the world. So I find this all the time. You talk to Christian people, and you're like, this is definitely a Christian, but they don't think like a Christian because they weren't educated by Christians. Their view of the sciences is secularized. Their view of the arts is secularized. A lot of Christians will say, give me a definition of the arts. Oh, well, it's about self-expression. Eureka, you don't think like a Christian. That's not a Christian view of art. A Christian view of art is that we creatively express the imago dei, the image of God within us. Whenever we create art, it reflects either the beauty or brokenness of creation because we are created and he is the creator. We don't just come up with crazy ideas in our own mind and express ourselves for the sake of expressing ourselves. I was an art major in high school, by the way, so I know about all this stuff. The arts for the most part, have been hijacked by secular humanism. And a lot of Christians, Christian artists think like secularists. And then you ask people about science, and they're like, well, I believe that, well, I, I, I love God, but, but I, I actually do believe in Darwinian evolution because I, I've been taught it so much. I've been, we have Christians in our churches that are physicians and scientists and biologists, and they don't want to say it in Aaron Rock's presence. But they actually believe in macroevolution. Which is I, I could I could defeat that theory in five minutes. It's absurd and ridiculous. The only reason why Darwinian evolution is the dominant view of human origins in Western culture today is because there's only one alternative and people don't like it. It's creationism. If there were two secular secular notions, people would drop Darwinian evolution in a heartbeat because it's so ridiculous. But we have Christians in our churches. They've been taught it for so many hours, for so many years. They believe it's true. And when I preach like this, they're like, this guy's a nut job. They're born again. But they're actually denying major parts of the gospel and creation narrative itself. So the, w- the way out of this is generational. The way out of it is to make sure that Christians and Christian churches actually think like Christians. And then Christian parents and Christian churches actually educate their children to think like Christians. And by the way, if you want to spend more time thinking about that last subject, which I mentioned, the Darwinian evolution subject, we're probably going to do a conference on this in February or so in our church. So when it's announced, you can put that on your calendars. Well, I hope that today's teaching has been a blessing to you. As you think about the roles of husbands and wives, parents and children in the family unit, let's make sure we're teaching this stuff. Let's make sure we understand what our role is. And let's protect the boundaries from usurpers and intruders. The biggest of which in the current environment is the state. The state thinks it has authority over your children. Deny them access to your children. The state thinks they can define marriage. Deny them that, what would we call it? Usurping that claim, I guess. Deny deny them that. Let's teach people a robust view of Christian marriage and live it out in the context of our churches and our Christian families to the honor and glory of God.